Our Untangled Minds is for informational purposes only, and it does not constitute professional, medical, or psychological advice, diagnoses, and or treatment. Please make sure that if you do have questions or concerns that are medical or psychological in nature, that you seek out your physician or qualified mental health provider for future help. Furthermore, the information, viewpoints, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the views of individuals that are involved. They do not represent absolute fact and are subject to change at any point in time. CUSM does not accept responsibility for these views. Lastly, the names and details of any medical stories shared in this episode have been edited for privacy. As physicians in training, we are taught to put aside our personal feelings and beliefs to provide the highest quality of care for our patients. While this is an incredibly important tenet of practicing care, how do we approach situations in which we must make a choice in morally gray zones, such as opioid prescription or disability insurance? How do we communicate with patients who are unhappy with the decisions we make, and how does that impact the physician-patient relationship? This episode seeks to uncover some challenges that may arise in long-term physician-patient relationships and how to maneuver through those difficulties professionally and humanely. Hello, and welcome to Our Untangled Minds at CUSM. My name is Rachel Hahn, and today's episode is on uncovering some challenges that may arise in long-term physician-patient relationships and how to clarify our role as healthcare providers during those challenges. Joining me today is Dr. Ko, who has worked as a primary care physician for 11 years. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Ko. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. As many of our listeners know, primary care is the highlight specialty when it comes to long-term patient-physician relationships. However, many specialties such as OBGYN, oncology, and geriatrics are also fields where physicians can develop a long-standing relationship with their patients. For you, Dr. Ko, can you tell us why you chose to do primary care? Yeah, I recall wanting to develop long-term relationships based on trust. I also wanted to be patients home-based to help them navigate their various life challenges, particularly where their health was concerned. I see. Um, Based on our earlier conversations, it sounded like you knew very early on that you wanted to interact with your patients long-term. Did you ever have any worries about this aspect of primary care in medical school or during your residency? I definitely recall thinking about time constraints in primary care, and I think that's probably the extent of my worry during medical school. Of note, I don't think I ever saw the same patient for more than one episode of care in medical school. Mm. It wasn't until my internal medicine residency, where I had a patient continuity clinic, that I began to see patients on an ongoing basis and develop long-standing relationships with them, experience the joys of that, but also I think that was the first time I experienced some of the challenges involved. I see. So it wasn't until residency where you started to see patients over and over where you started to see kind of the pros and cons yeah, to the long-term yeah. relationship. Cool. Um, in, in terms just kind of going off of that, did a lack of progress with patients in a certain direction ever worry or bother you? Um, and how did you handle those situations? And what did you see your role as during those situations? Yeah, I think that is one of the most challenging parts of primary care where things don't progress as I hope or anticipate. I encountered various types of challenges with progress, so let me share with you a few examples that I think highlight a few different types of challenges. I specifically recall 
one example when I was an intern where I was dealing with a patient who had hypertension that was difficult to control. I mean, the patient was doing his part. He was taking the three medications that I had been prescribing consistently. It was me who was struggling because I wasn't sure what additional medication to add, especially since he was limited by a lot of medication allergies. So there was that sort of medical knowledge challenge with progress where I wasn't sure what to do next. Another type of challenge, though, was the challenge of patients not following my recommendations. For example, recommendations to cut down on alcohol or another substance, or to take medications to control their diabetes, or even to check their blood sugars consistently. I actually found these types of situations easier to manage because I was able to kind of reframe in my mind that this wasn't my competence that was on the line. I was able to see my role to educate, to motivate, but not ultimately control my patient's behaviors or be fully responsible for their health outcomes. A third area that I found a lot of internal struggle around, even as I moved on to being an attending, was around managing chronic pain. I found this particularly challenging when it came to decisions to initiate or increase doses of opiate medications. Here, I had the ability to provide something that many of my patients felt would be helpful, but the efficacy and the potential harms of which were often unclear to me in individual circumstances. What made matters more challenging is I sensed the medical community's attitudes on the use of prescription opiates, particularly for non-cancer pain, shift during the course of my 10 years of postgraduate training. The community kind of shifted to becoming more conservative, and I felt myself shifting in response. And sometimes I, I found myself looking at an individual patient or considering my pattern of prescribing and wondering if maybe I had shifted too far in the other direction. Thank you for sharing those examples. Um, very diverse and very different. It sounds like for that last example, uh, it was difficult to maintain the balance between your own values and what your patients value. When you did have to deny patients an opiate prescription or something else that they might have wanted, did they get upset? And when they, if or when they did get upset, how did you work around the tension that develops after you deny them what they want? To your first question, I think... One of the challenges of dealing with human beings is that we vary so much in our responses that it's impossible to predict a patient's response. Uh, some simply shrugged and said, yeah, I figured that's what you'd recommend, or yeah, I just thought I would ask your opinion. And others would have a very strong expression of frustration or anger that I was refusing to give them something that they thought would definitely help them. My general approach was to share my reasons as calmly and as clearly as possible and to remind myself that I wasn't in control of or responsible for my patients' responses. But if I'm honest, certain situations and patients really triggered my sense of insecurity. I find it difficult to balance having firm principles on one hand and remain open to individual patients' experiences on the other. I think it's this ethical gray area that makes decisions like opiate prescribing so hard. Mm. On the issue of opiate prescriptions, I remember experiencing a bit of a breakthrough when I started focusing on the long-term outcomes. 
As a bit of background, one of my responsibility as a physician prescribing opiates is to monitor for opiate misuse. This can manifest in many ways, including patients using opiates along with illicit drugs or getting opiates from multiple providers. I used to think it was my responsibility to catch every instance of a patient on opiates using an illicit substance. But then when I paused to think about it, that was neither realistic nor necessary. Sometimes, for example, a urine drug screen would return positive for an illicit substance, say methamphetamines, and a patient would swear they had never used meth. If this was the first instance, I would find myself struggling over whether to trust the patient. If the goal was to catch every infraction, then I was stuck with the dilemma. But I began to see the long-term context of not prescribing opiates to a patient who was continually using methamphetamines, and I was able to find a middle-of-the-road plan. Okay, let's redo the urine drug screen today. If it's negative for meth, I'll refill a month's supply. For the next three months, we'll maybe repeat a urine drug screen once a month. And if they're all negative, then maybe we can move on to every three months, and so on. Is it possible that a patient could be using meth in between urine drug screens? Absolutely. But it's less likely that the patient has a regular meth addiction and can really pause for de- the days leading up to each urine test. On the subject of opiates and the long-term goals, I also realized that I didn't need to rapidly taper down someone's chronic opiate dose when I was concerned. For example, I encountered a patient who was using 45 milligrams of morphine twice a day along with benzodiazepines, a combo that's generally discouraged due to high risk of adverse outcomes or even death. Once I discovered from his psychiatrist that he needed the benzodiazepine medication, I initially felt it was my responsibility to get him off opiates as soon as medically possible. However, I discovered it was a bit of a tug of war, and it took us some time, more than a year, to taper down his morphine dose to 15 milligrams twice a day. When I look back, I think this gradual approach worked out just fine. It got him to a safer level, and we found a way of doing so that maintained trust and respect in our relationship. Now, this isn't to imply that I didn't continue to wrestle. I still struggled, for example, with second-guessing if I was treating all patients equally. I wrestled if I was carrying implicit bias based on race, gender, socioeconomic status, or even whether or not a patient's spouse was advocating for an increase in opiate medications. It's hard to constantly consider my biases, but I think it certainly beats the alternative. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of the wrestling and maintaining the trust has to do a lot with just finding a middle ground between you, what you want and what the patient wants and kind of taking the long-term approach instead of the short-term fix. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In a vein similar to the previous question, was there an instance where you were working with a patient and you're in a situation where you have to tell them something they don't want to hear, uh, maybe such as an outcome um, other than not prescribing them something that they might want? And how do you manage expectations of the patient in those cases? Yeah, I've done quite a bit of thinking about this. I think the first expectation I need to manage is my own. Do I expect to make patients happy or to avoid difficult emotions like anger or sadness? Or similarly, do I expect myself to always persuade patients to see the wisdom of my medical decision? Having unrealistic and unhealthy expectations has previously worn me down and led to burnout. So developing emotional boundaries 
and self-compassion have been a key to my work as a primary care physician. Great. Uh, And I think it's really, really important for me personally, but maybe other students or residents to hear that they're not responsible for how the patient reacts or the patient's happiness. Of course, like we want to work with our patients and we want we want them to be happy with our treatment plan. But sometimes if we have to make a medically sound decision and maybe they hate it or they're upset at us, uh, I think it's very hard to divide that responsibility of I need to do what's right and what's medically sound before I make you happy, I guess. And I think that is a very important thing for me to hear personally. So that was a great, great response. Thank um, you. Kind of along that line, when we get like personally frustrated because it's bound to happen in just such a like fast-paced career, have you ever personally felt like frustrated with a patient for either personal or professional re- uh, reasons? And how do you handle those moments? Yeah, I, I can think of a couple of reasons that involved personal or, or professional boundary issues. Um, one of them was a patient who wrote very long emails um, through his EHR. And there were two things that I found troubling about the emails. One was their length. They were often one to two pages long. Um, the other was the the request. Uh, it was something that I wasn't able to provide. He wanted to have his conservatorship removed, and it was something that really needed to be decided by a psychiatrist. So in that situation, I set a couple of boundaries. One, I, I shared that this was something that was out of my control, and this was something he needed to follow up with his psychiatrist on. And I did have to remind him over the course of several emails about that. The other was setting a boundary about the length of correspondence. I shared that I really need him to keep his correspondence to more brief emails, and um, that it just directly impacted the the time frame it would take me to respond. So if he wrote emails that were longer, it might take me more than the usual 24 to 48 hours to give him a response. Mm-hmm. Um, another issue that I find challenging is when I feel like I might be being manipulated by patients. I think of an example of a patient who wanted to come in monthly for B12 injections when that's something that could definitely be self-administered. Later, one of the nurses explained to me her opinion that he was coming in monthly so he could get the travel reimbursement. I found this kind of challenging because on one hand, it made perfect sense. But on the other hand, it was something that I really couldn't conclude with certainty. So it was just this tension of, am I being manipulated? Is this patient gaming the entire system? I don't know. So in that situation, I just had to let it go. Um, Another example revolving around manipulation is when patients might ask me to complete a work accommodation form, and I sometimes question if they're truly as limited as they state. There are times, for example, where they'll state one thing about their limitation, and then I'll later observe them doing something different. I think I struggle with that because it it just gets to the heart of the patient-physician relationship, which is trust. It's tough sometimes to have to point out that I am noticing specific behaviors and essentially imply that I don't trust what a patient is telling me. I try to be objective in those cases um, and when making decisions, 
uh, and I'll try to be as specific and behavior focused as I can when I point out the apparent discrepancies to patients. But ultimately, gray areas exist sometimes. Mm -hmm. And over time, I've kind of had to decide that I'm going to give myself the self-compassion to allow myself to err on the side of trusting the patient. That's great. Uh, That's not something we get to hear too much or get any training about in medical school or residency, Um, filling out, you know, the work accommodation papers or certain things like that. So it's really great to hear you talk on that. Um, In most situations, would you say that over time you've developed a sort of algorithm on, you know, when you're going to give something or not? Or would you say it's always case by case for your patients? I do think I developed some principles over time. Um, For example, patients often request that I complete other forms like putting them on state disability, authorizing a handicap placard, allowing them a reduction in the cost of their electricity from their, their provider. And like you highlighted, I never received any formal training on how to complete these forms. So it took a while, and I sometimes still wrestle to develop some sort of standard for indications or thresholds for each of these decisions. But developing these principles helped me to at least feel like I was being fair. It allowed me to shift from using my patient's responses as a key measurement of whether I was deciding fairly. Another tool or principle that I've used has been deferring making long-term decisions by first making incremental ones. For example, if a patient requests six months of disability for a condition that I'm not really sure requires that duration of disability, I might make an incremental decision to offer one to two months of disability and then schedule a follow-up visit to reassess in one or two months if further disability is appropriate. So making incremental decisions often allows me the time and added information gathering to make a decision that has a longer impact. But by and large, a lot of these decisions are case-by-case decisions, which makes this so emotionally exhausting at times. Right. So it sounds like there's no easy way out on A lot this of times, one. yeah, there isn't. No. Um, so it sounds like you have to also be really mentally resilient when you're working with patients, especially long-term and then when you encounter these challenging situations. Do you think you've always been mentally resilient or do you think that's something that developed as you were a medical student and throughout your training? I mean, just thinking about myself as an attending, my resilience has waxed and waned in large part because I think there are so many other factors that impact resilience outside of my work. For example, I think I had less resilience at work after becoming a father and being more emotionally taxed at home. Breaks certainly help. For example, I notice if I take a week off for vacation, I usually have the stamina to do pretty well for another few months. On to your other question, I certainly don't think resilience is a fixed trait. I think it's more of like a muscle that we can develop. And for me, I've learned a few elements that can contribute to resilience, like mindfulness, self-compassion, and humility, especially when it comes to interactions with other human beings. Uh, A particular practice I find helpful is journaling. I I journal most days of the week, and it's an opportunity for me to slow down with my thoughts and emotions and then think intentionally about how I'm going to move forward. I see. 
Do you feel like that's helped you in your practice? Like if you're doing a full week at the clinic and you're journaling throughout that week, do you find that it's easier for you to be resilient that week compared to others? I know that it helps me show up with more of a fresh mind. Mm -hmm. Journaling for me is a way of putting down my thoughts in a way that I don't have to justify to another human being on paper and usually having the openness, vulnerability, I suppose, to be able to do that um, allows me to um, reframe things Mm -hmm. and then show up with more of a fresh perspective and a a full emotional tank um, to my next day of work. Yeah, awesome. Um, We have one last question, and that's regarding mistakes. So I think something a lot of our students would like to hear about is how to handle mistakes or patient dissatisfaction. It can be really daunting to admit a mistake to a patient, and even though, of course, you have to do it, there's a concern that the patient may lose trust in us once we tell them. Uh, How have you handled these situations previously? I recall a situation as a resident where I ordered the wrong type of catheter placement for a a procedure. It turned out that not only did the patient end up having that unnecessary procedure, but the unnecessary catheter also led to a blood clot requiring several months of an anticoagulant. I felt pretty awful. I admitted the mistake to the patient and her spouse, and to my surprise, the patient and her partner were gracious. This doesn't happen, of course, all the time, but it is helpful in all situations to kind of go back to my values and my intention. If my intention is to function under integrity, which it is, um, rather than to manage other people's responses, then I know I need to be honest and confess my mistakes, even if the outcome is out of my control and sometimes may turn out unpleasantly. Also, I think their level of trust or even choosing me to continue to be their doctor is out of my control. Um, I need to choose to admit my mistakes, which is the thing that I can control, and then give my patients the freedom and myself the self-compassion not to try to control their response. I have noticed that most of the time, patients are pretty disarmed by a sincere apology. For example, when I read their message to refill a medication and somehow forget to order it, or I forget to order an x-ray I promised and then they waste a visit to the radiology department. Apologizing usually leads to a strengthening of our relationship. I think they see me as human and it reminds me to be patient with their humanity as well. Amazing. Thank you for that advice and thank you for being so vulnerable uh, in your sharing with us today. Are there any last pieces of advice or wisdom that you want to give us before we wrap up today's episode? Accept and even embrace the vulnerability of being human, of not being able to fully control circumstances, people, or outcomes. I think that's helped me to show up more compassionately for my patients. Great. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or episode suggestions, please email us at oumpodcast at cusm.org. That's oumpodcast at cusm.org. Thanks.